Matthew chapter 14, and those of you were, most of you were here this morning, so that's not a surprise to you that we're going to the book of Matthew tonight. And uh, how many of you have just a well-worn path in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew? Well, most of you should have. We've we've been here for now three and a half years in our study. And much of what we've talked about during this time is not the subject that you hear in uh, sermons in other places. Uh, Certainly the many times that we've talked about the doctrine of hell, as Jesus teaches on that, and his teaching that you must commit absolutely everything to him, and also the teaching of the exclusivity of Jesus, that there is no way that a person can ever go to heaven or be right with God unless they come through Jesus Christ. That's not the the subject of most preaching that you hear today, but rather as time goes by, teaching, uh, preaching becomes more and more inwardly focused. And so if you visit the Christian bookstores, you uh, find on the shelves books about self-help and self-esteem, and there's a great deal that's written about how capable that you are. If you just summon up some kind of an inner strength that you, that you have there, then you can accomplish everything that you desire. I don't know how many of you watch uh, television, watch the Christian, Christian programming on television, but you often see Joel Osteen and hear about the books that he's written. And uh, in his books, he gives you these simple steps to victorious living. And they all, the ones like him, they always assure you that if you just follow these steps, that you'll be what God desires you to be. You'll have everything that God desires for you to have. And the chief method that they promote is that there is some sort of good that's in every person. If you could just grab hold of that energy that's inside of you and you determine to be a better you, then you'll have everything God desires for you to be and you will have everything God desires for you to have. But conspicuously absent in all of these messages that you hear on that kind of teaching is anything there that tells you about the sinfulness of man. And there's nothing there that tells you that when you reach down inside of yourself... When you get down to the very deepest part of your soul and you try to pull something up, then the only thing that you're going to find there are the filthy rags of unrighteousness. And the Bible teaches that there is nothing in us that will make us better. And we're all familiar with that passage, uh, that scripture in Jeremiah, where it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And so that means if you pull up what's deep down in your heart and you try to make yourself better with that, then you actually only make yourself more loathsome in the sight of God. And so how is God ever going to use that to make you a better you or make you or give you what you, what you want, want, uh, want to have? But the truth of the matter is just what Jesus said himself. He said, without me, you can do nothing. And I want us to very clearly understand that, that we are helpless without Jesus Christ, that there is no divinity in any person. And what we need is something from an outside source. And that outside source is the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And We have what God wants us to have, and we're made what God wants us to be because of Jesus Christ, because he's the one that met all of God's requirements that's placed upon man. And so when we have faith in Christ, as we've been taught here, and as we know, this is when Christ transfers his righteousness to us, that he covers all of our sins that have been committed against God. And again, the only thing that's going to make us what we should be and what God intended for us to be is Jesus Christ. And so the message of the Bible is not self-help and it's not self-dependence. The message is that God is our only help. 
He's our only resource. Or as Psalm says, he's our refuge, our strength, the very present help in a time of trouble. So I want you to understand that. But as I look over this crowd tonight, and one of the reasons that I turned the messages around a little bit today is because I knew the crowd that we would have tonight, and I know that most of you are well past that point in your understanding, that you have realized your sinfulness and you have come to the place where you know that there was nothing in you that you could do for yourself, and so you committed all of that to Christ. And so instead of looking inwardly, you have looked outwardly to him. So that first part that we talked about, that's for unbelievers and And if there is someone here tonight that hasn't received Christ as Savior, then the thing that I do or want to do is encourage you to throw away self-help books when it comes to religion and see the Bible as the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we find our help, and he's the only help that there is that brings salvation. But for those of us that are Christians, this passage of Scripture that we're reading tonight and going to study also next week Um, it really is to teach you something as well. And that is, you've realized your helplessness without Christ and you have trusted him for salvation. Why is it that now, in the lives of so many Christians, at this point, they do start to look inwardly and they start to live by their own resources? So why why don't you have the same confidence in God to give you power in your life now as you had for the power to save your life in the beginning. So for this week and next, we're going to look at this miracle of Jesus, and we're going to see here how that Jesus so vividly illustrated that he is our resource. He's everything that we need. It's going to take us a little while to get through it, and we're going to take a couple of weeks to do it, but uh, there's a lot in this, so I don't want us to miss it. So if you'll look in Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse number 14, and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, And he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away. And that's a very interesting statement there. I'm not going to talk much about that tonight, but the disciples' answer to this problem is, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the village and buy themselves victuals. And I said that right. That's, That's victuals. That's the word. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men beside women and children. Now what I'd like for us to do first here is to back up in in the life of Christ to, to understand what's already happened in his ministry. And I'm going to give you a few mile markers along the way here so you can just kind of jot these down on your listening sheet so you can kind of pick your way through this. But we'll go back here first of all as chapter 8. And in chapters 8 and 9, we find reasons for why the people should believe the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus had preached that sermon in in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And after Jesus preached that sermon, he came down from the mountain and he began to do these special miracles that gave people proof of why they should believe the things that he taught in the sermon. 
And what they heard was much different than they had ever heard before. It was different than what the religious leaders said. But there, there was a certain authority that Jesus had. There was a gravitas that he had as he taught. And that wasn't present in their religious leaders. And so the Bible says the people were amazed at what Jesus said. And so when he came down from that mountain, from that elevated place, and after he preached the sermon, then he began immediately to do miracles that proved that he was the Messiah that was sent from God. And those miracles continued, and the proof was mounting up, and it was abundant. But we come to chapter 11, and we find that the people are still stubborn to believe in him. And so in chapter 11, we find that there are complaints about Jesus and John, which led to Jesus' prediction of judgment on them. Not only had Jesus preached about the coming kingdom, but John the Baptist had preached about it as well, and John and Jesus had the same message, but they had a little, bit of a, a little bit different approach to it. But the people didn't like what Jesus said. They didn't like what John said, and neither the people, uh, uh, the people would accept what they, uh, none of the people accept what they said. And so they complained about Jesus and John. And you remember in that 11th chapter, Jesus talked about, uh, you know, I can't please you. There's no pleasing you at all. No matter what we do, you're not going to be complete, pleased. You complain about everything. And so in the 11th chapter, Jesus predicted judgment on the cities where he had done so many miracles, and yet the people remained in unbelief. And yet when we approach the end of that 11th chapter, we still find that Jesus reached out to the people with compassion. And he invited them to come to him. And he just says, if you'll come to me, I I can relieve you of all of these oppressive burdens that have been put upon you by your religious leaders, the ones that have demanded so much that's not actually in the law, and all the regulations that you have to live by. I can take those away from you. And I might add here that, in principle, the doctrines that are taught by the self-help people, by Osteen and all of those, are are really the same with the scribes and the Pharisees because what they did was to look inwardly. And they tried to find goodness from within, and they tried to be righteous with God by what they could do. And that was nothing but a recipe for disaster. And so Jesus wanted them to stop looking inwardly and to come to him and be relieved of all of that burden. And then we come to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we find illogical rejection of the religious leaders. See, the leaders were in danger of losing their influence with the people, and they simply had no answer for the miracles that Jesus did. And they couldn't deny them. They saw what he could do, and it was evident proof that he was doing something supernatural, and they couldn't answer that. And so they had to have a way to explain them. And so their solution was to claim that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan. And at best, that was an illogical charge, and at worst, it was a very blasphemous charge. So it was clear at that point that the leaders were never going to get on board. And so the people are torn between Jesus on one hand and the teachings that he gave and the miracles that he could do and what they had been taught by the religious leaders for so many years on the other side of this question. So they're torn between the two, and they would not believe in Jesus. They were stuck there. And so this is when Jesus began to withhold truth from unbelievers, and then he turned to speak to his own disciples and to give more truth to them. And that was the purpose of the 13th chapter. In chapter 13, there were mysteries of the kingdom that were explained in parables. And so that chapter was given to show us why the kingdom of God at that point was not what uh, the people expected. 
that Jesus was the king of the kingdom, but it was not the time for him to begin a kingdom like they'd read about in the Old Testament and studied there. Uh, There wasn't uh, going to come at this particular time the reign of perfect peace and of righteousness. That's not coming to the earth, and neither was it time to permanently separate the believers from the unbelievers. But they could be sure of this, that Jesus taught them that a day of judgment is coming and there is going to be that eternal separation between those that believe to the saving of their souls and those who reject Christ as the Savior. And so, unless they have, and you have, we all have the forgiveness of sins by turning to Christ for our salvation, we face that eternal separation that's coming. And that's just another warning to all the self-help gurus and people that stick with them because if you do and continue to look inwardly then you miss the kingdom of God and I can promise you this your best life will be now because what comes afterward is eternity in the fires of hell so that brings us to chapter 14 and in chapter 14 we have the beginning of the withdrawal of Jesus so the 14th chapter starts with the story of John the Baptist's death, and that was our subject last week on last Sunday morning. And that sets the stage for where we are this evening. And John was put to death by Herod Antipas. Herod was tired of the constant preaching of John that condemned him for his immoral marriage that he had to his brother's wife Herodias. And so he had a birthday party. And that was a drunken, illicit affair. And at that party... Herod gave orders to cut off John the Baptist's head. Now, we have that story in the beginning of the 14th chapter, and it's told in a flashback manner, something that happened about a year before this time. It's brought to light in the 14th chapter, and there we learn that Herod had heard of the fame of Jesus. And in that superstitious fear that he had and in the guilt that he had in killing the servant of God, he started to believe that this must be, that Jesus must be John the Baptist who'd risen from the dead. And so he wanted to see Jesus. Probably out of some morbid curiosity, he sent for him, but Jesus refused to come. And if you look in the 13th verse, you see the withdrawal of Jesus. It says, when Jesus heard of it, means when he heard of the death of John the Baptist, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Jesus' intention was to get away from the crowds and to contemplate what had happened with John the Baptist and then also to avoid Herod, because Herod most likely had designs on killing him too if he could get his hands on him. Now certainly Jesus was not afraid of Herod. But this was not the time for a confrontation. There was still a lot of work for Jesus to do. This is not time for Jesus to go to the cross. And as I told you last Sunday morning, Herod did finally get to see Jesus, but it was at his trial. And Herod was one of the ones who mocked Jesus and condemned him. So it wasn't the time at this particular point for Jesus to give himself up to Herod to go and see him and and then have that confrontation take place because his disciples still needed understanding. There was still some teaching to go on. And we notice that they did begin to learn because at the end of this section, which comes in chapter 16, Peter makes that outstanding confession of Christ where he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you come into the 17th chapter and begin there, and you find that Jesus showed that in a most magnificent way, even in a greater way, when he was transfigured and shown with the glory of God. So we return then to this story in in chapter 14, and Jesus has withdrawn and gone into a desert place. 
And that doesn't mean a desert like the Mojave, Mojave, but it means a very scarcely populated area. And where he went was to the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's actually a very beautiful spot, a place with green pastures, but there weren't many people that were living there, and that's simply because it's an agricultural area, one of the areas where they grew their food. So there weren't a lot of towns and villages in that particular area. But the people heard where Jesus went. Uh, he, he was trying to get away from crowds and to go alone and to think and to pray. But as fast as they could, they took off around the shore of the lake because they still needed Jesus. They still needed him for things like healing. And, and, and the, they still were interested in some of the teaching that he gave. And so people with their illnesses, with all these diseases that they had, still came to him, and they looked for him to see where he'd gone. Now, if you're looking for your outline tonight, here's where we begin with point number one, and that is the compassion of Jesus. We see it in verse 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them and healed their sick. And so despite all of the problems that went on, despite the disputes that he had with the religious leaders, despite this wholesale rejection of him as the Messiah after they'd seen the miracles that he did, Jesus still had compassion on them. He still wanted them to come. And we expect to see Jesus doing exactly what he did right here. And he still had this feeling towards them that he had back in the ninth chapter, this, this verse that we read this morning. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So those religious leaders had abused the people. They'd beat them down. They'd ravage the sheep. And the plain truth of it is, for all the religion that was in that country, for for all the things that the scribes and the Pharisees taught, and for all of the pretended obedience to God that they were giving, and people thinking, we must be serving God, still there was nothing inside of them at all. There was nothing for them to reach down into and summon up from the inside and help them, so they're left completely helpless. The religious leaders have no answer. And so Jesus knows that they're in that condition and there is no way that Jesus could see them that way in his heart not go out to them. And so you see a great contrast here between religion today and televangelists today, the ones that are writing the books and preaching the prosperity gospel. They live in their mansions. They drive their Rolls Royces. They wear diamonds on every finger. But their hearts aren't with the people. They fleece the people, and they still leave the people with no help for their souls. So people are helpless, and this is why you find people that move around from church to church, and they visit a lot of different places, because they're trying to find a shepherd who will give them the right information, someone that will feed them in green pastures, somebody that will lead them to living waters. And so people visit many different churches trying to find the answer, trying to find something that will help them. And then when they do, they find out if they come to a church like this that the preacher gets up and he tells them bad news. And he says, you're a sinner. And tells them, you're under condemnation. You're under the wrath of God. And so these same people get the feeling that God is only happy when he can punish them. And God's only happy when he can reach over and grab a lightning bolt to throw at them. And so they're turned off by that message. And what they don't understand because they don't stick around long enough to hear is that God is still a very compassionate God. 
And God showed his compassion for people in the most magnificent way possible, and that is he sent his own son into this world to die for our sins. And he sent that son, his son, when punishment was the thing that we deserved. And so this gift of God to a world that's dying in sin is his grace given to justly deserving sinners. God's not anxious to throw anybody into hell. He says in Ezekiel, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Well, how do you do that? How do you turn from your way and live? Do you reach down inside and do you pull up the dregs that condemned you in the first place? Well, no, that's not, that's not the way to live, to turn to live. You turn to Jesus Christ. He's, he's the one who has compassion for you. And so every day that a person goes on thinking that he can help himself when God says that he can't, he just heaps condemnation. It gets worse. So God sees that helplessness, and what he's done is to provide a shepherd that guides us. So we do expect to see Jesus doing exactly what he did here. He had withdrawn to be alone, and it's not because he didn't like the people or didn't want to be with the people, but this is Jesus and his humanity. This is Jesus like you and I that are weary get tired of long days and all the activities that he was involved with, and he had to get aside to rest from that. But when the crowds came, he didn't turn them away, but he began to teach them again. They refused him so much, but he taught them again and gave them another opportunity to hear about the marvelous grace of God. Now let's take just a moment then to talk about the crowd in this miracle. Now, if you look down, I want you to go down to the very last verse, in verse number 21. It says, And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. You know, everywhere you read about this miracle, Bible, any place else that you read about it in your study Bibles, it's always called the feeding of the 5,000. In my Bible, there is a division right before this section, and it says the 5,000 fed. And then right under that, it gives a reference to the other places in the gospel accounts where this miracle is recorded. And while we're on that subject, this is, you might note this as a little bit of your trivia here. Uh, Maybe it's not trivia, but this is the only miracle that Jesus did that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. And that must tell us there's something very significant about what he did here. So when I turn to Mark 6, 32, where this story is told, or Luke chapter 9, where it's also related to us, or John 6, 1, I find the same heading, 5,000 fed. And I suppose that's okay to say that that's what it is, but we notice in our text here, it says there were 5,000 men fed, and there were also women and children were there that were there. So the likelihood is that we're talking about a crowd that's 15,000, 20,000, or possibly even more. Now you think about that, that Jesus was headed to a place that was mostly deserted. And in Mark, it says that before he ever got there, that the people started streaming out of the towns and villages, and they were running around the lake trying to get where Jesus was going. And someday, I hope that you have your opportunity to stand on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the same area where Jesus was. And from that high place, you can look out over the sea, and you can see many, many miles of the shoreline. So Jesus was able to see all these people gathering up and coming towards him. 
And since the story is in all four gospel accounts, there's significance in what Jesus did here because now he's at the pinnacle of his, of his popularity. There are the helpless and the hopeless that came to Jesus for healing. And there are the onlookers who came. There are people that just want to see another miracle done. And there are those that are interested on the teaching side still somewhat. They never heard anybody say what Jesus said. And so in a world that was routine without all the gadgets and everything that we have to capture our attention, Jesus was, and I say this with the utmost reverence, Jesus was a superstar. And that's why Herod wanted to see him. Herod heard of his fame. And we find out in the book of John that before this day was through, that what Jesus did was so outstanding that the people said, if this guy can heal us and this guy can feed us, then let's make him our king. And does that give you an idea why Jesus didn't want to be around Herod? Remember what Herod's father had done? When Jesus was just a baby, he considered him to be a rival king and tried to kill him. So what do you think that Herod would do now? Now that Jesus is a grown man and is doing all these things. So here's this crowd. And 5,000 certainly would have been enough for us to call this some kind of an outstanding miracle, surely. But 15, 20,000 people shows us without question, and if you don't get this, you'll never get it, that Jesus is able to do what we are not able to do. So forget about summoning up inner strength. And even if you could muster up something, what's that? compared to Jesus? What's the value of it compared to him? So here's this crowd, a vast multitude, and Jesus' ability to heal them and feed them gave them an overwhelming desire for him. And we can only say, or say, if only that desire had been channeled into their spiritual beings and into their mortal souls rather than into the physical, then how blessed they would have been to be with Jesus. Now, thirdly, we look at the concern for food. In verse 15 it says, And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the village and buy themselves victuals." Now, I don't have time to deal with all of that tonight, so let me just briefly talk to you about the disciples' concern for food, because this concern is what actually blossoms in to the main theme that we want to deal with, and that is... Christians cannot live in their own power. You were helpless when Jesus found you, and you're still helpless. You still have to have him. So whenever you try to do something in your own power, what will happen is you're going to fall flat on your face in front of God. So what about food? Well, food was an everyday subject. I mean, that concerned a lot of the people. It got got their attention. In the previous story, we read about how Herod was fasting on his birthday, or rather feasting on his birthday, and he probably threw away more food than these people ever saw in a week. Now, I, I don't think that we really think a whole lot about food. I mean, I, I know we think about it in some respect, but we don't really worry about or think about where we're going to get our next meal. Now, sometimes when we have dinner here at the church, I think some of you believe it's your last meal. Um, I see some people go by with their plates and are piled high and sideboards trying to, you know, keep everything on the plate. But we don't really worry that much about food. I don't worry about it a whole lot. I mean, I like to eat just like you do, but I don't really think about it and worry about it all the time. But we're talking about a different type of people here, a different time. Getting enough food was an ongoing problem with them. Uh, There wasn't a lot of waste in those days. 
I've been talking to my wife the past few days about, you know, we need to save some money and we throw away more than we eat, it seems. But these people weren't like that. I mean, it only took one summer of drought and you have an entire starving population. You didn't have countries all over the world that were bringing in food to you and trading food. It's not like the United States where we have so much food that sometimes farmers are paid not to grow it. And that's the kind of farm that I want. I want a 1,000 acres of land where the government pays me not to do anything with it. That, that's my dream job. But that's not the way it was in Israel. And so you can imagine when you find somebody that can heal you and somebody who can feed you, when you're used to pain and suffering and starvation, you have somebody that can take care of that, how fast are you going to run around the lake? How many times are you going to look to see where Jesus is? And that's the very point that Jesus complained to the people about later. After he'd fed them a few times, the interest in the preaching started to wane. And I wouldn't be surprised if we did the same thing here. If I told you every service we're having food, that pretty soon people would be coming just for food and say, well, let's leave right after that. We don't really need the message. Well, Jesus saw that in the people. Uh, Now they were keeping their eyes on him to find out where he was all of the time, so they could be fed. And and there was probably quite a buzz that was circling around the Sea of Galilee. Where is Jesus now? Where is he going to next? Let's find him. It's dinner time. Now, I want you to turn to John chapter 6. And and this is what we're going to read here is after the miracle. And this is where we're going to stop tonight. We're still going to talk about the miracle and get to that more next week. But I want you to see... Uh, this and we'll wrap things up with this and and finally rehearse our underlying theme but in john chapter 6 verse number 22 this is after the miracle the next day it says the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save that one whereunto his disciples were entered and that jesus went not with his disciples into the boat but that his disciples were gone away alone howbeit there came other boats from tiberius nigh into the place where they did eat And after that, the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So do you see what's going on there? The people are fed one day. The next day, they start to get hungry again, and they're headed to the place where they thought Jesus were. But Jesus wasn't there any longer. And so they found anybody, just anybody that had a boat, and they said, can you get us to the other side? Can you get us back, get us over there to Capernaum so we can get to Jesus? No time for walking. Hope for a wind and row as fast as you can because we're hungry. And so they set off to go to Capernaum. Verse 25 says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, whence camest thou hither? And I like the way that that question is asked. They said, why didn't you tell us that you were leaving? We love you so much. We can't stand to be without you. And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. You don't ever want to try to pull anything over on Jesus. He already knows what's in your heart. There's no way that you're going to slip by him and say, Oh, Jesus, I love you so much. I care so much about you, and I care so much about your work. Now, where's my car? And where's my new house? You know, Osteen says, Give the Lord a hand. Clap for the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, You're on prices right. Door number three, there's your prize right behind that. Let's make a deal. 
Jesus knows what's all that, what all that's about. You're not going to fool him into thinking that you really care about him when really what you have in your heart is just self. You're just interested in self. And so what does Jesus say to them in verse 27? Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. And if you don't know the passage in John, let me tell you what follows this. Jesus started preaching about the bread of life. And he told them what what they needed is not something to fill up their stomachs. They need life for their souls. And they need the bread that came down from heaven. They don't need fish from the sea. They don't need the barley cakes from the field. They need him. And that's what he said that he is. He is the bread of life that came from heaven. And the only way that we're ever going to be what God intended us to be is to partake of that bread that comes from heaven. So you can't reach down inside of yourself and grab up anything that will help. You can't put your best efforts into anything and be pleasing to God because if it did not originate in God or with God, then it's of no value. So the first thing that we learn here, I think, in this is what we need to do is give up on ourselves and look to Jesus We know first that if we don't, we're going to die in our sins. If we don't look to him, then the God of wrath that people are afraid of is going to say, I warned you about that. I offered you something to help when you had no help. I gave you my son to make you what you needed to be. And since you have rejected him and since you've turned inwardly instead of to me, then here's the lightning bolt that you thought I was so eager to send. So we can't do this for ourselves. Only God's the one who can make us pure and clean and holy. So I think that's the first lesson that we learn. And then when we learn that, then we see that once we have trusted Christ and he saves us from our sins, then he'll show us constantly how that we're helpless without him to live. That he has to be the one that supplies everything daily for us, our spiritual food, the physical things that we have, all life and breath is given from God, and we must depend upon him. So he's the help every day. And what we have to learn to do is to live out of God's resources and not our own. So we forget about the idea of self-help. And forget the idea that some people put out there, you do your part and God will do his part. Anybody ever read that in the Bible? You do your part and God will do your part. I've never read that in the Bible. And the reason I haven't is because God is the only one who has a part. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that we have in the Word of God. And we don't have time to complete it all tonight and and to get into it much more. But we do thank you for what we can learn here of our dependence upon you, that we can't help ourselves. In salvation, we can't help ourselves. And then the, the, the power to live a Christian life, to do what is pleasing to you, does not come from ourselves either. But we always have to look upwardly. We have to look outwardly and look to Jesus Christ who saves us and supplies all things for us. We thank you, Lord, for giving everything that we need and promising to take care of us. Bless our people, Lord. We thank you for those who come to hear the message tonight. Be with us through this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.